And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. And I forgot my line. <laughs> well, I got so distracted by not mumbling through I hope we lived up to our name that I forgot I had to finish the sentence. for the Mundangerous Simul Space in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 115 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're revisiting a favorite topic as we pitch a few plot hooks for your adventures at home. But first, the rogue traders report their success to their captain in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Hercules labors onward in the Character Creation Forge. So first thing to announce before we get into the rest of the episode, we've got 69 reviews on iTunes. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we've stopped asking for them, but we, uh, we will go back to reading them. I think we're a couple behind. Um, we do appreciate those. It's a very helpful way for promoting the show and helping people find us. So uh, thank you to everybody who's submitted uh, iTunes reviews and gotten us to a hilarious number. And it's really lovely to read them, actually. I mean, I, I hate to sound sappy, but... I also love to sound sappy. Yeah. <laughs> on a on a long night of editing, it can be helpful to just ch- pop in and be like, oh, someone said a nice thing. Thank you. <laughs> For once. <laughs> Definitely didn't come from either of us. <laughs> <laughs> You're terrible. Uh, speaking of terrible. <laughs> yeah, bad news. Uh, our panels for PAX Unplugged were roundly rejected. So we will not be uh, hosting any panels in Philadelphia uh the what is it the weekend of the 19th of november yeah 17th through 19th uh we'll still be there though along with our entire gaming group so you know if you want to hear us talk about dumb things swing on by um and our friends over at going last were not roundly rejected uh rich has a game theory panel that he is hosting on friday i don't know the exact time yet but um he he was approved for that so that's cool and we're still working on a meetup with them. I'm not sure if it's going to be in like a open gaming space or if it'll maybe be in like a hotel lobby or something. But once we finalize that, we'll get the details out to you so you can join us. But a bit of good news for at least one of you. We do have the results from our raffle. And our grand prize winner among our Patreon supporters is Tyler S., now, I've got to say, Tyler l- lucked out here because he became a Patreon supporter literally two hours before the deadline. Hey, I mean, there's no time, no minute like the last minute. That's right. Uh, so Tyler is currently deciding whether he is going to take the um, Pathfinder starter pack or the Curse of the Crimson Throne adventure path. Uh, so once he makes up his mind, we'll actually be in touch with uh, the second winner to uh, find their address to send them the other one. And thank you, of course, to all of our Patreon supporters for all of your supports and pledges. Uh, We really appreciate that. That helps us keep the show growing and going and uh, doing cool things. So um, thank you to everybody for entering the contest. Yeah, and this definitely won't be the last giveaway we do. So, you know, stay tuned. Uh, But speaking of always a player, never a winner, uh, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the crew of the His Enduring Light has finally finished their business on the feudal world of Gontelgrim. And they've 
somehow managed to leave uh, mostly intact, uh, missing a few limbs. And a few internal organs. Uh, well, yeah, in- internal organs, limbs, what's the difference? Uh, but they they have their commendation from an Imperial Guard commissar. They have the thanks of a planet that is now reintegrating into the Imperium. And I think most importantly for you guys, you got your first fat, juicy contract to supply rations to Gauntelgrim in order to jumpstart their economy. Yeah, the thanks are fine, I guess. And, you know, I hate commissars because I'm in the Navy. Okay, but <laughs> money... Money is something that we've actually been after. It was the only reason we came to this dumb planet in the first place. And I'm so happy we're actually hopefully leaving with a little. Right, because with money, you can buy gear. And with gear, you can go kill more Xenos to get their stuff, which you can sell for money to buy more gear. Yeah, which also keeps you alive because you need (laughs) gear in order to not get shot in the face and die immediately. Exactly. (laughs) So, as we mentioned, you lost a few limbs. You also had a brief accusation of heresy, which was uh, true, but ultimately inaccurate, and therefore you got off. Yeah, it wasn't completely true. I mean, maybe in the future it will be, but for now, uh, we've proven essentially that we aren't as bad as other people thought we were. Right. Uh, and you have left the planet and made it back aboard the His Enduring Light. Uh, and you are setting course for Port Aquila, which is the exact sort of wretched hive of scum and villainy that uh, you guys will feel at home in. It's it's basically the last outpost of Imperial space before you go into the void beyond. Yeah. Okay. Now that we're finally at home, stinky home, I guess it's time to check in with uh, the parents. So... We, you know, make the requisite visit to the chambers of our rogue trader, Lord Captain Elias Lionheart, just to, you know, fill him in as we do. Right, because uh, when you were prompted by the commissar to produce the rogue trader uh, and your warrants of trade, your right to conduct rogue trading, uh, you sent down a false rogue trader because you figured your real rogue trader would just somehow screw it up. Oh yeah, he's terrible at everything. And it's it's really the main reason that this ragtag group has allowed has been allowed to act as rogue traders. It's because our Lord Captain really doesn't care about stuff. He just stays in his room all the time. And so he lets us act in his stead. Uh, but, you know, we still keep him somewhat informed just so he, you know, doesn't get antsy and try to actually do things on his own. Right, yeah. If you keep him uh, fat, dumb, and happy, he's less inclined to make your lives hell. Or at least he was. Right. Because when you call upon him, uh, he doesn't answer. Which is not that uncommon. But even after calling multiple times, he doesn't answer. Which is pretty rare. So eventually we break into his room. And he's dead. He is dead. Ugh. So, this is a big problem. (laughs) Because, because he's really the only one who's allowed to be a rogue trader. So, so Doc investigates. He like checks out the body to see what happened. I mean, was this an assassination? Was it the Dark Eldar getting back at us? 
Right, right. Is there a betrayer afoot? You know, do you have mutiny on board your ship? You know, all, all the different possibilities run through your mind of uh, the worst case scenarios. Right, all the different possibilities. Like, oh, uh, was it the orcs that we keep on board? Was it the dark Eldar we let on board? <laughs> was it the strange <laughs> uh, black psychically active cylinder that you found and inexplicably brought on board? Was it the tiny psyker child that none of us except for Echo know about? Oh, right. I forgot about the tiny psycho child. <laughs> There's so many problems on this ship. Was it one of those strange twins that you keep insisting must be special because they exist? Uh, they have to be special. They're twins, okay? <laughs> and that doesn't happen. They're Chekhov's twins. You don't just put them in a story and then have nothing happen with them. They're special. <laughs> uh, it turns out it was um, none of those things. So Doc uses his Medicaid skills and determines that uh, Lionheart has been dead for 16 days, which is quite some time to, uh, you know, not have uh, been discovered. Okay, so what was the cause of death? Uh, no cause. Like, there's no signs of foul play, no disease, no uh, obvious trauma or injury. He looks perfectly healthy, just not breathing anymore. It just seems unfortunate so what you're saying is it's in avada kedavra it could be in avada kedavra <laughs> <laughs> okay so we do a little bit of math um what happened 16 days ago well if you recall uh this was in the midst of fighting on the front lines uh on the planet of Gontalgrim. you had recovered a drop pod that had dropped off course behind orcish lines and returned it to the Imperial side, uh, where you were hoping to find LAS weapons inside to bolster the defenses. Uh, and along with those LAS weapons, you found orc saboteurs. Ah, so that was the day that um, our psyker made a lot of warpy bullshit happen. Uh, well, I mean, it was a day that ends in Y, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I remember he adopted a demonic visage. He that did. That was weird. Yep. But then later, there was that weird, uh, creepy breeze. And, oh, right. What, what is it that the the psychic phenomena table actually says? Yeah, that was the lowest entry. The best possible outcome on the psychic phenomena for you guys was called dark foreboding. A faint breeze blows past the psyker and those near him. And everyone gets the feeling that somewhere in the galaxy, something unfortunate just happened. Well, this is unfortunate. It's pretty unfortunate for you guys. <laughs> Well, that's the way warpy bullshit works. <laughs> so the problem you guys immediately recognize is that warrants of trade are granted to dynastic families of rogue traders by the High Lords of Terra, who are basically the leaders of the Imperium. Um, and so when a rogue trader dies, his warrant is passed on uh, to an heir. Elias Lionheart did not have a natural heir. He had no sons or daughters, so his warrant would either go to another member of his family or more likely would be reclaimed by the High Lords of Terra and then awarded to another family for some service to the Imperium. Uh, and along with that warrant would come the His Enduring Light and its crew, which of course includes several Xenos and you guys. Okay, that's bad, uh, but... The first problem I see is that our crazy psyker killed our rogue trader. Okay, 
your crazy psyker didn't kill your rogue trader. Something unfortunate happened to your rogue trader, and your crazy psyker felt it. Mm, I think you have causality confused. No, he killed him. He totally <laughs> killed him. Yep. <laughs> Whoops. We are no strangers to the unfortunate. This is just how things work in the grimdark future. Uh, but yes, we need to figure out a way to keep this warrant of trade because this is all we've got. No one else is going to hire us. We only got onto the ship in the first place because Lionheart doesn't care about anything. Exactly. So, the crew comes up with a plan. And we'll find out what that plan is next week. All right, so this week we are talking about plot hooks. We're going to give you some of them, tell you how uh, we would run them, what system we might use, and give you a bunch of information to hopefully you know jog the creative juices. But first off, Shane... What makes a good plot hook? Yeah, so these are like our guiding principles. So we want a hook that uh, first inspires the GM and gets the players excited to play the game. So it's got to be something cool, right, and different. Yeah, you know when someone throws out a premise and, you know, the rest of the table's eyes light up and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, let's do that. That sounds awesome. Right. Uh, then we want a plot hook that can draw players in a variety of directions. We don't want it to be a linear story. We want the players to be able to interact with the story. And you also want a plot hook that is manageable, at least within the parameters of the RPG that you're playing. Yeah, like you'll never get a puzzle to the degree of the Da Vinci Code working in an RPG. That's just too complicated. But you can definitely steal some ideas from the Da Vinci Code and use those in an RPG. All right, so Shane, what is our first plot hook? So our first plot hook is an orc warlord has allied with a dragon and is invading from the steppes. Okay, so Genghis Khan gets his hands on a B-52 bomber. Yeah, kind of like that. Okay, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you've got like a, an orc warlord who has united the tribes and allied with a white dragon. So, you know, a nice cold dragon for up in the steppes. Um, and then they've they've proceeded south and have handily won the the first few battles, but for some reason they aren't pressing forward as hard as they could be or they normally would be because you know orcs are pretty blitzkrieg oriented uh, warriors and they seem to just be winning and holding. A white dragon is as well like they're the uh, the most brutish, the dumbest of the chromatic dragons. So it also seems strange that it's not rampaging. So there must be a reason for that, right? Um, and, and so I would say, like, the reason is they're looking for some lost artifact, something of power. Um, they're not just raising and pillaging because they're actually investigating, which, you know, as you mentioned, both are kind of blunt instruments. So the artifact is going to be relatively straightforward, I would imagine. Yeah, I like the idea that the players would need to discover this slowly because I'm assuming the the orcs and the dragon are searching a village, right? Or a location or a castle. Mm -hmm. But then when they're done with it, they don't find the artifact. They're raising the place. They're burning it to the ground. Right. So by the time you show up a week later, obviously you can't tell that, you know, there was a, a relatively careful investigation. But, you know, I think as the party is sort of catching up to them and, and showing up uh, sooner and sooner after the events and maybe even eventually catching them in the act, then they begin to notice, oh, wait, this is weird. Yeah, you, you could kind of get that um, Indiana Jones, like, racing the Nazis for the Holy Grail mm. kind of kind of dynamic where, like, once you figure out what it is they're looking for, you can just head them off at the pass, right? 
Yeah, and I love that it, actually it's way worse than just um, an army of orcs and a white dragon. Right? If right. they get this artifact, the whole world is screwed. Right, right. As far as how I'd run this then, I would go for you know, D&D, probably 5th edition. Um, probably about level 3 would make sense because then you're, you're pretty capable and you can handle groups of orcs pretty well. Um, and I think you could probably take this around level 10 to 12 mostly just based on how hard you make that white dragon i wouldn't want to make it like an ancient white dragon or anything because it's going to be too hard for you to influence the dragon's behavior as low-level pcs so you want him to be more of a mid mid-range dragon yeah i like that starting around level three the no matter what dragon you've got it's terrifying and there's no way that you can face it head on but right. by the time you get to 10 you can the party can probably take an adult white dragon with orc minions right um, and, you know, if if you're concerned that'll be too difficult, you could give your party some advantages or the white dragon could have discovered other useful things that give him advantages to beef up his difficulty if the players are a little higher, a little ahead of curve. Yeah, like gnolls. <laughs> or like magic <laughs> items, you know, like as they're uh, as you've got orcs that are that are raiding dungeons and right like looting for it. Uh, they They probably found other useful magic items that they then gave his tribute to the greedy dragon yeah this big dumb dragon like a hat of disguise and i mean you say big dumb dragon <laughs> but like i mean white dragons aren't aren't idiots they're not like buffoons. i think they have intelligence nine okay. actually i'm not sure about the adult uh, they're probably a little they're, they're around human average maybe a little below but they're not like you know drooling idiots i like the hat of disguise because it, you maintain your size i think so Maybe it can it makes him look like a giant. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a giant orc. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, what are some of the challenges in running this type of scenario? So, this this is always a challenge, I think, when you've got um, small scale PCs in a large scale like military action. Right? Is that you've got to get the PCs to the front lines, but then they have to have something to do in these big battles because it's not super fun to just be like, okay, cool. So I, I roll for arrows again as they charge at us. Great. I roll arrows again as they charge at us. Cool. I use a fireball on a big group and it's like, all right, there's thousands more enemies. So what am I even doing here? Yeah. I mean, you run into the problem that pretty much all one-to-one RPGs have is that mass combat is difficult or a bit clunky. So I, I think the solution to that is to cut them loose from those battles with specific smaller objectives. So you mentioned the the dragon is like a B-52 bomber, right? You could task the PCs with deterring the dragon. So they need to figure out a way to keep the dragon from just strafing the human lines. Right. The party is a group of specialized commandos. You know, SEAL Team 6 doesn't face a horde of enemies head on and mow them down. Uh, they sneak behind enemy lines and carry out a very important task while faceless minions do that other stuff. Exactly. So you just need to give them that reason. Um, and then as they are carrying out that plan, right, doing what it is that they need to do is, as those kind of commandos, they need to start discovering clues that then lead them on the trail of the search because that's how they get engaged mm-hmm. with the mystery portion of it. You also have this issue where orcs and dragons is this... Um, this big difference in challenge rating. Um, so how do you go about mixing those together without either having combats that your party easily wins or without crushing them? 
Yeah, and and the problem with sneaking behind enemy lines is that you could end up with you know a hundred orcs, and then it doesn't matter how strong you are. A hundred of anything crits you five times. And if this ends up being kind of a sandboxy campaign, it's tough to make sure that they don't encounter the dragon too early, like at level five, because they're they're just gonna die. Right. Yep. But I, I do think one of the advantages of orcs is that they're one of the enemy groups and especially within volo's guide now that their cr does step up pretty consistently up to about where your dragon would be around cr 10 to 14 so there will be options available for those kind of boss fights right um just to be increasingly difficult as the players get more powerful let them always be running on to appropriate challenges i think that makes sense or describe, uh, yeah, there are a bunch of like low-level orcs, but you take them out really easily, um, and then just fast-forward to the point where they actually hit real resistance. Yeah, that would be another good one, is that you could kind of integrate that into your stealth check of, like, you know, as the rogue goes through, as the assassin rogue goes through to sneak behind enemy lines, he also garrots all of the guards so that the rest of the party can go in without having to deal with it. Yeah, I like that. Um, and then I think the other challenge here that you need to keep in mind is the artifact. There has to be a, both a reason that it was hidden and lost and also a reason for the dragon to have figured it out and also a reason for the dragon to be looking for it, right? Um, and and specifically to be using an army of orcs to do that rather than simply hiring some, you know, greedy adventurers to, to go deliver it to him. <laughs> Which actually would be a nice little heel turn for the party. <laughs> I also like that um, the dragon doesn't really know how to use it. Maybe it's beyond the dragon's ability, so they get it, right? Even if they do get it, the party can't stop them. Mm-hmm. And then it goes haywire. Uh, and maybe maybe everyone needs to band together with the orcs and possibly even the dragon to fix this. Oh, yeah, no, I'd love if that were like a homing beacon for, uh, what are the Illithid ships? Not nautiloids. The nautil- yeah, so it's it it ends up calling forth a nautiloid. <laughs> it's an orb of mind flayer kind. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you're bringing on the mind flayer invasion. <laughs> Cue next arc. Right. <laughs> uh, we fast forward six months, where uh, you are all slaves of the Illithids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, how does it feel to be a big dumb dragon? Intelligence three. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they ate its brain. It's a thrall. Right. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go to our next plot hook. So this is is more like a campaign premise, a bit like uh, our last episode where we talked about using the sequester spell to fling a party, um, you know, years or even centuries forward in time each session. So this one I'm calling "Everyone Is God." Oh, I've played that game. No, that's "Everyone Is John." <laughs> so let there be light. That, that's a cantrip. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway, we're we're getting off track. Okay, so in this um probably relatively short campaign, uh the entire party plays as a different demigod or like a scion or a chosen of a different deity. So everyone picks a deity, a different deity, and then says, "Okay, I am either that god's child or I am like a, a high priest or I uh, I'm somehow imbued with their power." Um, and the party has been kind of thrown together by their patrons or their parents to um, carry out a quest that these gods can't do on their own, you know, either because they're they're in some sort of cold war with another pantheon and they're not allowed to 
uh, interact directly or, you know, whatever MacGuffin reason you make up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so all of the players need to decide, okay, so what, what God am I attached to? And how is that reflected in like this mortal form? The game that I might send them on, though, is while they are playing these very powerful deific characters, they need to, quote unquote, stay under the radar in order to conduct whatever mission this is. Because, you know, if if it could just be world shaking, then the gods would just go do it themselves. And, right. and I like the tension of um, they are extremely powerful for mortals, but the gods are like, oh, yeah, you know, you just just do this quietly because, you know, you can't help but do things quietly because like you're a tiny mortal it's not like you can really change all that much you you know but as a party of five or six half deities is making their way across like the ancient world certainly big huge things are happening and they sort of need to be like oh oh well crap i guess we destroyed that city um um what do we do what do we do i don't know run let's run let's get out of here make sure no one saw us yeah yeah no i kind of like that it has that sort of um screw tape letters kind of rules where you Mm. know the gods can't directly influence things they can only sort of induce mortals to do things on their behalf look at you with the non narnia c.s lewis reference Mm, thank you thank you (laughs) so how would you run this game then what system like campaign link that sort of thing so i think any system where you've got uh, discrete religious abilities. Um, so obviously D and D has clerics, but something like Deadlands also has characters uh, of faith with uh, specific abilities. Um, or you know, Dungeon World obviously its own kind of cleric. So, uh, but I think what I would do in terms of mechanics is bring back an old idea from third edition D and D, Gestalt characters. Uh, Shane, do you remember these at all? Uh, this is where you leveled up in like two classes and kept them both, right? Yeah, exactly. You mashed two classes together. So uh, in 3.5, you'd basically be like, okay, I am a fighter and I am a wizard because that's always the, the gish people wanted to play, right? But you wouldn't like take a gish class. You would just say, I am 100% fighter and I am 100% wizard. So you would get all the stuff a fighter got, all the armor and the weapons, and you would get all the stuff a wizard got, all the spells, you get like double the hit point. So you obviously were much, much more powerful. But the idea was that everyone in the party was gestalting and the um, power level of the game was increased commensurately as well. So if I was going to do this in like 5e, I would just say, pick a class, be whatever you want to be, but no clerics because everyone is also a cleric. Right, right. And everyone needs to pick a different domain and therefore a different deity. I think it would actually be interesting if you pick different domains but could share deities. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Then you'd have sort of a, a built-in, yeah, like I'm the kid, but I am the, the priest. Yeah, I think that's that's that works for me too. But but either way, right, you're you're looking for like a, a pantheon is fighting for its survival in some way or, or trying to get something done as a group rather than as individual servants of, of a single deity. Right, or even multiple pantheons are coming together. Like, I have no problem with, like, uh, the Mulhorandi or the Egyptian gods getting together with the Norse gods and being like, I mean, we don't talk much, we don't hang out much, but we have to right now. Oh, have you been watching American Gods? I have not yet. Should I be? I I don't know. I hear the show's good. I didn't like the book. (laughs) Ever the contrarian, this guy. It's true. It's true. So I think in terms of length, 
we're probably talking about a shorter game, right? Yeah, I agree because I would I would start the characters pretty strong, probably in the mid levels. Like, so if, if you're looking at a twenty level D and D game, you probably start around level ten. We're talking Dungeon World, probably five or even six, and then you're slapping on another class. So everyone's getting much more versatile. Everyone is getting quite a bit more powerful. Um, it's hard to maintain that level for that long, especially once you're getting toward ninth level spells. I probably wouldn't even let it go that far. I'd probably run this thing 10 or 15 sessions, let them finish out some super cool quest and use these awesome abilities and then not have to worry about how gestalt characters sort of end up in the end game. Yeah, I don't think I would even let them level. I would I would sort of set that parameter as like, the, the leveling is done. You're as good as you're going to get, right? So pick accordingly. Yeah, that might be interesting. You can go 10 or 15 sessions without leveling. And maybe you get a few interesting items. Or right. you could even slap on, like again, I'm using sort of 5e as the map here. Um, the DMG has um, other ideas for, you know, uh, blessings or epic boons or things like that. You can sort of hand out as rewards. Right, but those are much smaller in scale than adding a whole An new entire class. level, yeah, yeah, exactly. So... I can immediately think some of the challenges you're going to have here anytime you involve Gestalt, right, is going to be keeping the power level challenging because you're going to have super powerful characters and you need to have in-story concepts that challenge the players that then have the correct mechanical representation as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, right off the bat, the CR system doesn't work for you. Um, or, you know, whatever system your game uses to tell you how powerful enemies should be. Um, But I think that you can use that in your favor, at least to start off, because I don't want the players fighting things that should be an appropriate threat for them. I want them to be demigods in a world of men. So I want them walking around and easily handling things that most player characters would would struggle with right i want them to be like slapping things aside or like calling down fire even though they're like an amazing fighter um and then once they get so that that feel that idea of oh okay wow we really are we really are really powerful then you can start throwing out like the monsters of legend you know okay you guys can handle armies uh, a horde of orcs is not a problem now you're facing the hydra right and then i like your idea of potentially having two or more people sharing the same god because that helps with another potential issue i see which is um pantheons are often at odds within that pantheon and and different pantheons are often at odds because they often just don't even interact at all right um so it it can be hard to give the party a reason to work together in the first place which is why you sort of need to you know have the god sort of force them like your god basically sends you a dream and says you're doing this yeah, I mean, it, that's easy for the PC's perspective, but from a story perspective, you still need to explain that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the PCs still want to understand, like, wait, why am I working with these strange Egyptian uh, deities' servants rather than, you know, my friendly neighborhood Norse pantheon? And I think you can start off with it being mysterious, you know? Like, the gods are very much need to know. And, you know, you follow instructions, sure. But I think pretty quickly after a couple sessions, you need to start uh, giving more information about what is this huge threat or, or what is it that is binding the hands of your patrons that means that it is very important that you work with these people, even if you don't necessarily 
get along. And, you know, ideally, hopefully over the course of 10, 15 sessions, the characters get to know each other, get to see that obviously we're much more alike than we are different. And if they don't, even if they sort of like hate each other and end up at each other's throats, it's not that long where they need to work together for the the greater good. It can just be an interesting tension in the story and then end. You know, I think this is a really interesting way of averting the spell plague in Forgotten Realms. Like the the deities uh, have their champions, you know, specifically to avoid magic no longer functioning. Right, like like the real threat to gods is losing magic, right? Hold on, did you just suggest that we set this in the Forgotten Realms? I accidentally did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay, you're you're subverting uh the history of the setting, so right. I think that's I'm, okay. I'm fixing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um I could even go you could even go further back and say, let's set this in the time of troubles. And why aren't the gods like doing this themselves? Well, it's because they're basically demigods right now. Like AO sent them to the ground they're like walking around now i can't do everything yeah yeah or you know i mean in in any setting you could have the gods are are handling a a metaphysical threat while um they need champions to handle the physical manifestation of that same threat so in the god world they're doing their own fighting but um similarly their enemy has sent champions down to mess with mortals and you need to avert that like uh, what Thor was doing during uh, Civil War? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, that, that's actually a, a perfect parallel, right? Why didn't he just fix stuff? <laughs> right. He's fixing uh, other stuff. Shut up. Guardians of the Galaxy 2. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the gods themselves are all banding together to hold back Thar's Dune so the entire multiverse doesn't unravel. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to handle it. All right, so for our third plot hook, this one is a little bit of a rip from the headlines. A malicious AI has infected social media and is corrupting humanity in order to destroy it. So I would say uh, this malicious AI is called Russian Hackers. Oh my god, RussianHackers.exe. Yeah, I know, right? Who would click that? Um, (laughs) So it's infecting social media to promote, you know, polarizing and malicious content and it's psychologically eroding humanity. So it's like suppressing critical thinking and impulse control and, and generally, you know, destroying civilization as we know it through social media engagement. So every time you share a meme or every time you click a viral link or a clickbait headline, you're, you're slowly becoming less of a, less of a human and more of a beast. Um, I was about to say this is basically the premise of Eclipse Phase, but actually this this is real life. This is exactly what's happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every time you, dear listener, click a meme. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> You're becoming a bit less human. <laughs> Every time you click a BuzzFeed <laughs> listicle, Ishin dies a little inside. Yeah. There's not much of me left. <laughs> basically undead. So the the players obviously want to figure out how this works and then find some way that they can undo the damage, either uh, a brilliant hacker who can target it and, and counter it or uh, a means of destroying, you know, every network that it's it's infected or, or something to that end. Uh, and then obviously, I mean, I think I think I made this pretty clear in the lead up. Right. Uh, this was created by vampires to make humans into docile feed animals. Oh, wait, what? 
Okay, yeah. now I now I like this. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So the va- a vampire cabal has created a malicious AI that will turn humanity into instead of seeking them out and attempting to destroy them, will just turn them into slavering beasts that they can use as feed animals. And only Buffy can stop them. Or perhaps the Knights Black Agents can stop them. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Look, this would this would be uh, a great episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, okay? Just saying. <laughs> It'd be a, a great season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Where the end of democracy is not a one-off villain. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so I think uh, a system like Knights Black Agents, or if you if you take out some of the supernatural elements and, and leave it just as the AI, um, any sort of super spy uh, kind of high powered modern setting could do it. Um, Eclipse Phase would maybe do it, but you'd really have to punch up the threat. And I think uh, it doesn't have a direct parallel for something like Star Wars, but you could you could maybe work that in as well, um, replacing you know, social media with a uh, rebel recruitment or something like that. Yeah. Or maybe a Sith holocron has infected uh, the holonet, you know? Yeah. And it, like, there's a force ghost in there wreaking havoc. Right. Um, but I think this is, uh, this is going to be a pretty long campaign. You know, you really want to build in layers to it because it is sort of a world shaking conspiracy without a, a single point of failure for it. Right. Or a single approach to uncovering and, and addressing it either. I really like that a system like Knights Black Agents, you know, which is based on gumshoe, lets you handle all the sort of tech stuff um, just by hand waving and say this happens or, or doesn't happen without needing to explain exactly how it works. Yeah, and actually, I specifically didn't mention uh, Shadowrun because this would basically be the Decker's wet dream, <laughs> and then the rest of the runners have you know limited stuff to do. Right, everyone gets their own van. Right. <laughs> All right. So one challenge I see here is if you have the party running around, basically, I don't know, they're kicking in doors and, you know, destroying server farms. Um, how do you then transition that to what is essentially a more meat based conflict when they actually come upon the vampires? Yeah. And I think um, not only that, but the the way that you choose the system to support the game is also going to influence that. Right. Like. If you play Knights Black Agents, you're pretty much tipping your hand that vampires are involved, right? Like you wouldn't choose yeah. <laughs> Knights Black Agents to run just regular Jason Bourne. That's Jason Bourne versus vampires. Um, you get a little bit less of that problem if you're playing one of the more sci-fi settings. So that's a yeah, that's definitely a challenge of like, how do I foreshadow the vampire involvement? You know, do I have uh, perhaps vampires running? interference that's distracting from this main threat you know like do i make them appear independent problems that are really linked you know like you need to address the vampire element um and figure out how that's going to be a meaningful twist and not one that feels super arbitrary or just a long time coming vampires really okay i guess i thought we were hacking right exactly um another thing that I think what you'd, you'd want to address is um, the AI needs to actually be an active threat, right? Like if you just leave it sitting on a server farm and slowly decaying humanity, like that, that isn't something you can really interact with as a 
as a PC, right? Like other than going on Facebook and having to make a sanity roll or whatever, like there's, it isn't really a direct threat. So you need some way for that AI to manifest challenges directly to the PCs, like actively opposing them. Um, so it would totally fit the vampire thing, right? Give the AI a little bit of mind control. <laughs> like let the AI form thralls. Yeah, it's basically the Eclipse Phase Basilisk hack. Oh, right. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. <laughs> I like that with this premise, there are plenty of non-vampire uh, enemies who are like not in the know. They don't know that vampires are behind this. They don't know that there's so, some sort of like mind control meme out there. They just see the results and they like it. Oh, so you're talking about Mark Zuckerberg, the archvillain. <laughs> Or, you know, the Kremlin. Yeah, the the unknowing, complicit archvillain, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did make Batman and Superman fight each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Jesse Eisenberg wasn't a good uh, Lex Luthor. It's because he's a great Mark Zuckerberg. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark, where's your hoodie? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I mean, this is, you know, the same way that... Uh, you know, people chase after ambulances and, and you've got um, capitalists chasing every every disaster, right? Like some people will benefit from the rise of social media, even if it's a terrible thing. And, and they will want to keep social media moving forward because that's how they get rich. So the Mark Zuckerbergs, the, you know, the founders of social media companies, advertisers that are using it to push their products, um, the actual Russians. Yeah, the Kremlin probably really likes this. <laughs> Russian hackers are destabilizing capitalism. It sounds great for Russia. Yeah, so it's a good thing that you're playing actual super spies because otherwise they would just crush you. Right. So I think there there's probably a little bit of a challenge here between um, balancing that level of realism, right, and and sort of all of the the realistic world responses to it, with also getting to interact with the cool stuff like the vampires and and all the stuff that make you want to play the game in the first place. All right, so for our last hook, this is really something that you can bolt on to almost any game that you're already planning. Everybody loves the idea of heirloom items. You know, uh, I start the game with a plus one longsword that I got from my father who got from his father. Um, but in practice, it never really works out that well because you know as soon as you find a plus two long sword you sort of throw away like <laughs> your heirloom sword because right. who cares. As soon as you find a beefsteak tomato you throw away your heirloom tomato i mean obviously because your heirloom is ugly i, I can't even identify different tomatoes <laughs> <laughs> so it goes cherry you, heirloom it's because, steak. it's is because you only eat smoothies tomato <laughs> <laughs> anyway so so the the premise that i would use in order to facilitate having items that a character doesn't throw away is give everyone an artifact right off the bat yeah but but like a locked artifact right yeah exactly so you don't want to give an x of the dwarvish lords to a first level character and just be like here you go but you do want to give them an axe of the dwarvish lords uh that has like one or two of its abilities well hang on hang on let's let's go back to that why wouldn't you want to give the axe of the dwarvish lords to a level one character okay well it might be awesome for like a, a very short campaign like whoa yeah but it makes the game about the item and not about the character 
because 90% of the abilities that your PC has come from the axe. Exactly. And and the person wielding the axe becomes very secondary until they get very high level. Yeah, because you could give one of those to like a Dwarven wizard and they would still wreck with it. Right. Um, And then the other part of this, if you're into the realism and verisimilitude, is uh, if you give a level one PC the axe of the Dwarvish Lords, a level five PC comes along and ganks it. (laughs) And we're done. Yeah, like you you need to be strong enough to get the item and then keep the item. (laughs) That's that's an important part that no one one ever looks at, right? And also from a story perspective, it becomes about the axe. Like, oh my God, like we found the axe of the Dwarvish Lords. But in this, it's not. It's not the axe of the Dwarvish Lords. It is your heirloom axe. Right. It is the axe of the uh, the Moorish clan. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to you. There's no reason for anyone else to steal it or to come after you. But as you grow in power, it also grows. So really, it becomes the axe of the Dwarvish Lords because you are becoming a Dwarvish Lord. Right, right. So, you know, just take an artifact, write down all the abilities that it, that it has, and just gate them, you know. Um, and you can do this however you want. You can say, all right, when you hit level 7, you get this ability. At level 14, you get this ability. Or you can give options. You know, these two mm-hmm. abilities are about the same. So at level 6, you pick. Do you want this one or this one? Yep. And then at level 8, you'll get the other one. Exactly. You know? And then, of course, you can also gate them in terms of the story. Like, the character has to go do a particular thing. You've got to take your axe and you know do some research and figure out what it could be or maybe it doesn't happen until like they have a a crit in combat and then you know the power bursts out of it because of the amazing thing that you just did yeah i would i would just caution on that um as you have multiple characters in the party with with multiple of these artifacts you don't want them at odds trying to complete these private quests to unlock their items so either keep the um, keep the things they have to have to do pretty well aligned so they're all kind of running in the same direction to unlock these things or make them relatively small and, and maybe sort of random like you said like the first time you crit it unlocks versus um, you know needing to go uh, defeat this certain great enemy of the dwarves in order to unlock the next ability it's like all right well then I got to bring six people along with me uh, and then the elf wants me to go destroy the, uh, you know, the corruptor of the forest. So now we got to go do that. And it's like, we're going to do this six times just to get our abilities unlocked. It's like, that's either your whole campaign or it's a huge derailment of your campaign. Yeah, I totally agree. You want to tie the abilities of the item to the growth of your PC in the first place. The PC and the plot, right? Right. And then so it might just be that you get the next ability on the list that is uh, that makes the most sense for the plot. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love the idea. I, I love any time you can uh, give alternate paths for growth for characters, right? Giving more cool stuff to, to players like it feels great as a player. It's awesome to see as a GM. And it also helps avoid some of the um, wish list type item fishing that you'll get Mm -hmm. you know someone needs a particular type of item for their particular type of build well you know at first level you picked this item and there's no you don't get bored with it as much i think because you know you have history invested in it um it probably has a name that you gave it and there's no reason to get rid of it because it's effective right continually throughout you know as you level so how would you run this then you could use, I think, any system where gear actually matters. Um, and because 
it, it's almost this organic growth. Like the, the item is leveling itself. I would probably avoid um, a more technological based system. So it would be one that has magic in it where it makes sense that the sort of like the soul of the owner itself is empowering the item. Mm-hmm. But I think any game where you have discrete items handed out to you that can get very powerful works well for this. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, so obviously D&D works really well, right? That's the example we've been using. Um, like I think Star Wars would probably be more difficult for most items with the exception of like lightsabers or, or yeah. force-enabled weapons, right? So then you've got to be playing a pretty force-heavy, sensitive game. Um, but there are like like I'm thinking like eclipse phase because you can do so much modification right like and and you could be hacking that or, or sort of splice the gear into your psyche like that could make sense where it unlocks as you level up that that actually I, I think that totally works even though that's very technologically driven uh, and then in 40k uh, if you recall there's the Jakaru which are like the um, like simian race of Xenos that are just tinkerers and they like create these super powerful weapons from like just mixing different Xenos and Imperial technologies together kind of haphazardly um, in in Rogue Trader I think there's like rules around rolling because they're unpredictable and they just um, they give you random modifications and almost all of them are good but some of them are much better than others like you could take the randomness out of this like have Jakaru sort of um, uh, lock the weapon to your uh, so it's like gene coded to you so you can't get rid of it it's it's only going to ever work for you and then the Jakaru keep making new modifications to your stuff right and giving you a reason to keep sticking with the same equipment that you've been using yeah, I I like that. Um, I mean, there could be any reason. There's always warpy stuff going on, or you know, the emperor provides. Or it could be like a religious thing for the Jakaru. They don't have a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of culture built in canon, so you, you could be like a beacon of something for them, right? Like you could be their paragon. Like they they're attempting to create the finest things for you for some reason. Oh my God, the Jakaru Messiah! What a <laughs> what a disaster for the Imperium. <laughs> <laughs> and there are six of them right <laughs> uh, the only thing I would say with uh, technological setting is it's easy to explain why the item has gotten more powerful but you need to figure out a way why you couldn't just like take that modification off and put it on something else right right or cannibalize it for, for something else so it works well for a system like Shadowrun where the tech is infused with magic oh right yep I, I mean 40k the technology isn't understood well enough to right. to do that and um eclipse phase you know like i said you could easily like psychically splice that and then it's tied to your ego instead of tied to your body oh my god 40k if it was just like uh an stc that purpose builds items uh specified to the needs of the user oh man <laughs> that would be considering how much the imperium gained from an stc for a serrated combat knife like well, maybe the Jakaro gene coded it to this part. <laughs> <Right>. Whoops. <laughs> also, it seems like the kind of thing a rogue trader would keep very, very quiet. Very secret, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there are probably a, a couple challenges with this. Um, you've got to make the item important, right? But not outshine the character. I think that's a that's a difficult thing to do. 
And then if everyone in the party has one, it, it you've got to do a bit of work in making sure that every single person is getting what they want out of their item so they're not getting bored with it. Yeah. You know, and saying, eh, maybe I'll just switch to a longsword and, and a shield. And, I mean, you did that in Morning Glory. You gave each of us legendary items, and five of them stuck, and one of them got sent back. <laughs> yeah, one of them. Who had that one? Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you should just give me robes of the Magi. <laughs> I was trying to give you something special. I, and actually, I was trying to give you something that if other people wanted to trade theirs for it, because now yours was like in the at the shop, right? <laughs> oh, right. Um, I think another another thing you could run into is that players kind of get bored with only having the, the, the one item, like without being able to change it. You know, especially if it's a weapon, I could see like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of tired of being axe guy. I might want to be sword guy for a little while. Yeah, well, I think that's when you have the ancestors visit them in a dream and say, what are you doing being sword guy? Right. <laughs> that's a very, uh, a very order of the stick thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Our clan is the Axe Knuckles. Right. <laughs> you went to Fighter College. <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? I think that's the sound of my Jacaro cloning pod. I think it's ready. Because obviously that's what we do, right? We get more Jacaro. Oh, you're cloning the Jacaro, not yourself. Interesting. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. They're way more useful. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge and see what else they can build for us. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill, at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Hercules. You know, that demigod dude. Yeah, the guy with the TV show on UPN. What's he done since then? Kevin Sorbo? Uh, didn't he end up being like a, like a weird like neocon sort of dude? Yeah, he also played, I believe, the atheist professor who gets hit by a car and dies in God's Not Dead. Oh, okay. Well, interesting. <laughs> I, I thought I thought you were talking about the guy who dies at the beginning of Beat Joe Black. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, no, I'm pretty sure that That's was Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> that was the real twist. <laughs> Kevin Sorbo gets hit. Brad Pitt wakes up. I, I, I call that a win. <laughs> All right, so um, for for let's go more toward the uh, toward the, the the Greek myth of Hercules. Yeah. Okay. So I think he's best known for his twelve labors, uh, which we will not go into every single one of them. But uh, some of the highlights: uh, there was the Cerberus, whom he grappled, threw over his shoulder, and just carried out. <laughs> Uh, there was the Hydra, which grows two heads in place of every head you cut off. So Hercules started chopping off heads and had his cousin Aeolus burn those stumps. Remember Aeolus? He had also wonderful hair and that also waxed chest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also chased the Cervinian hind for a year, uh, tracking it and, cha- and running after it. Yeah, that seems like a long time. 
and he shot a bunch of stuff with arrows. Like it was like four or five of the laborers. He was just like, I shoot a bunch of arrows at these animals and they die or leave. Right. Like it was always like some some god or goddess gives me some thing that I need to scare them so that I can shoot them or, you know, disable their defenses so I can shoot them or, you know, make me special so I can shoot them. So if you look at the ways that Hercules actually accomplished these labors, for the most part, it's I shoot it with arrows, uh, I, I hunt it down, I run after it, and then I, I grapple it and squeeze it to death, or like I capture it by, by squeezing it. Or cut off its head. Yeah. He doesn't really use uh, wit or brains in the process, right? He he tends to get outside help when he needs thinking done, and he, he has all the physical aspects. Right. There was the Aegean stables, but the guy who owned the stables was like, that doesn't count. You didn't really do it. <laughs> Classic. Classic stable owner. <laughs> Just can't trust him flooded my horses but yeah it's clean <laughs> all right so what's the build for hercules it is battle master fighter 13 rogue 2 ranger 1 frenzy barbarian 4 so battle master fighter is going to give us three base attacks um he's going to get a bunch of different maneuvers which just make him a, a great fighter make uh, sure that he hits We'll grab archery fighting style so that his middling dexterity means he can still hit with his arrows. Well, I think more importantly, he's going to grab lots of ASIs so you can bump all of his stats to demigod-like status. So <laughs> he, he won't have middling dex by the end of it. Yeah, he's also going to get action surge, which means he can you know take a bunch of attacks at once or move very quickly if he needs to um, in a brief amount of time. And he's going to end up with an indomitable uh, twice per day, which means he'll be able to shrug off uh, some of the effects that people are going to be throwing at him. Because you don't usually defeat Hercules through strength of arm. You attack his mind. Right. Uh, Rogue 2 is going to get us expertise, which, of course, we love. And then it will also get us cunning action, which will help you uh, chase down that hind. For an entire freaking year. Uh, yeah, for expertise, I like persuasion because Hercules does a lot of talking. He's just like, I don't know, why don't you just give me that thing? Because that'd be great. Or like, let's make a deal. Yeah, a lot of begging for help. <laughs> and then if you take athletics, he'll also be uh, pretty much one of the best grapplers. Yeah, athletics or um, survival if you want to double down on the tracking side instead. Which is why you've got Ranger because, you know, that's tracking. Right, right. That gives you all the Ranger tracking goodies and none of the filler. And then Frenzy Barbarian is going to get you that bonus attack while you are in your rage. And, you know, also just sort of makes you go a little mad, which is what Hercules is eventually known for, going a little bit mad and killing his whole family. So as we mentioned before, you're going to want to spend most of your ASIs to bump your stats because you are a demigod. But if you want to take some feats, I think uh, Grappler makes sense uh sharpshooter makes sense and athlete gives you better athletic stuff so that of course makes sense as well all right so before we wrap up we want to take a moment and thank our patreon supporters your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week yeah and you guys have really come out for us we uh did officially hit our 200 hundred dollar monthly goal 
So we are working on the Character Creation Forge Codex. Like I've mentioned before, we're getting some help on that. So it's going to be a Google Doc spreadsheet that we'll share um, to be available. But we've got some help uh, digging through our archives and populating all the details on that. Yeah, so it'll be searchable and sortable. And, and once we work out that arrangement, we'll we'll let everybody know um, who's involved. And um, as we get the uh, updates to it, we'll release that first to patrons. And then um, probably later on, we'll release it for everybody. And keep looking out for an email asking for uh, what size t-shirt you want if you are in our $10 club and have been giving for three months or more. If you would like to learn more about uh, Patreon, you can check out uh, the reward tiers that we are offering at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. Uh, and feel free to suggest uh, other rewards. We're totally open to like switching some out or changing them or adding new ones for you. Yeah, we're, we're always looking for, for ways to do stuff that you want us to. Uh, we, we threw some ideas out there that we thought were manageable, and, and that's where we landed. Uh, it wasn't necessarily by request or anything. So um, anybody who's, who's involved and um, you know, has something that you would like to see from us, uh, let us know. We can, we'll try and work it into the Patreon campaign. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about respecking characters. And in a character creation forge? We're building the Savage Sage. Well, that's it for episode 115 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.